0: If you have a Bible, we're going to look at 2nd Peter chapter 1 today. And the title of the message is The Promises of God. Look at 2nd Peter 1 beginning in verse 1. And we'll pray first. Father, I just ask you, Lord, that you'll open our minds and our hearts to see the preciousness and the value and the greatness of the promises that you've made us and that you are faithful to keep them, Lord. That no matter what, when you make a promise, when you give your word, you are always true and honest, and you will keep what you promised to us. And we thank you that you're that kind of God, and I just ask that we can see that more clearly today in Jesus' name. Amen. We're looking at Second Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, we'll read through verse 4, and Peter writes, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So, you know, this whole overall picture of this epistle of 2 Peter, it's only three chapters, it's not very long. And he's writing to these churches of Asia Minor, probably the same churches that he wrote to in 1 Peter. And all he's doing is he's saying, I want to remind you of things that I've already taught you. He's just writing this letter to them. He wants to encourage them. And here's why, because he knows that trouble is on the way and that he's about to be martyred. So it's kind of like his, here I'm getting ready to go and these are my last words. So you can see he's going to be martyred. Look over there real quick, if you would, please, in verse 13. He says, yes, chapter 1, verse 13, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent, meaning his body, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent just as our Lord Jesus Christ Showed me, moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my departure. So he's writing this so they have this reminder. He doesn't want them to forget what he's taught them. Those apostles go off the scene. It doesn't take long. He knows the history of Israel. It doesn't take long for those leaders that get things started to go off the scene and things deteriorate quickly. So that's why he's writing to them. And most of this epistle, this letter, is written. And filled with warnings about false teachers that are going to come. He's saying they will come. He's not saying they might. And they're going to promote a gospel of grace that encourages a sinful lifestyle. And he says that denies the Lord. And that's happening to us right now today. He also says in that third chapter that scoffers will come and they're going to question the promise of the Lord's soon return. And they're going to be like, has it happened like he said? He said he was going to come back quickly, and he hasn't because where is he? That's literally what they say. Where is he? Let's just eat, drink, and be merry and enjoy life. And Peter's telling them in chapter 3, don't fall into that trap. Because the delay is not that God is slack or slow to fulfill his promises, but the delay is only for one reason, because he is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And he's telling them, look, listen, and he's telling us this now too. The new heavens and the new earth, they are coming. That's the promise wherein dwells righteousness. And he's saying, therefore, because of that, don't get caught up into what's going on around you, all the influence of the world. He's saying you need to live a holy and blameless life looking for that promise to come. Have the Lord find you in that way. And that's still a word for today. But he begins addressing these saints here and he tells them, verse 1 there he says to those who have obtained really the word means to be given or granted because faith is nothing that we obtain it's something that's granted by the lord but he doesn't just say faith he calls it what he says to those who have obtained like precious faith now what that means is in the greek it literally means faith that is equal in prestige or value And so what he's telling these Christians, because what he says there is, who have obtained like precious faith with us. So what he's telling those Christians is, we don't have the gift of faith because we're apostles. We don't have some faith that is superior to yours. You all, everyone here, every Christian has like precious faith. There's no difference in the kind of faith it's equal in value. He's saying it's not inferior. So he's trying to encourage them. He's encouraging them by telling them that. You can be encouraged. You have the same faith that I do. And the reason he's saying that faith is of value or is precious, why is faith valuable or precious? So we can boast at what we get from God? No, it's because it links us. That is the link that we have to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is it. And through that, it not only links us to Him, it links us to the promises of God. And the reason is, is because. All of the promises are fulfilled in him. All of them are. 2 Corinthians 20. we know this verse. For all the promises of God in him are yes and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. So he doesn't just tell us that the promises are yes and amen. You can count on a promise. He says the promises of God in him. It's through our union with him. They're fulfilled in him and they were made to Abraham, they were fulfilled to him Abraham and his seed, that's what it says in Galatians 3:16. And our union with the Lord Jesus Christ makes them ours. So the promises made to Abraham that were fulfilled in Jesus are ours. All the promises are yes and amen in him. Galatians 3:16 says now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made and he does not say, "And the seeds as of many, but as of one." And to your seed, who is Christ. So all of the promises were made to Abraham and to Christ, and fulfilled in Him. So they belong to Him, and the Bible says we're joint heirs with Him, Galatians three twenty nine. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise romans eight sixteen 16 tells us the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of god and if we are children then heirs heirs of god joint heirs with christ if indeed we suffer with him that we also may be glorified together and that is no small thing now there is a time boy i got a lot of amen saying you're a joint heir with christ That is no small thing. Still, that's never changed. So what's Peter's opinion of these promises of God? Well, look what he says here in verse four. He says, by which have been given unto us exceedingly great and precious promises. He calls them exceedingly great. Now, what that is, is it's the Greek word for great, but it's expressed in what's known as the superlative. So it's the highest expression of great. When we describe something as great, you know, we're saying, man, that was great. We're saying it was above average. Man, that steak I ate was great. It was above average. It just wasn't my typical steak. But this word goes beyond that. And it's saying that they're magnificent. These promises aren't just great. He's saying they're magnificent. They're extraordinary. They're very great. These promises exceed our highest expectations. That's what Peter thinks of the promises of God. And he goes on to say also they're not only exceedingly great and magnificent, but he also calls them precious. Precious means they are of exceptional value. He said that we were redeemed back in first Peter one. It's a word he likes to use precious. He said we're redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. I mean, the blood of Christ, there's no value can be put on it. It's it's exceptional value. And that's what he's saying about these promises. We take them lightly, but Peter doesn't. He says, oh, no, these are exceedingly great and precious promises. And we're linked up to them through our faith. So he's telling us here, he's saying they come to us and they're fulfilled through the divine power of God. And that divine power of God has given unto us, he says, all things that we need that pertain to life, the life in this world, and godliness, how to live a holy life. And it comes to us how? How does that power of God come to us to give us all we need through life and godliness? It comes through the promises, through us putting faith in the promises. And so what Peter is telling us in the church then is, how can you be depressed? How can you be depressed? He's excited because he's saying, listen, this like precious faith. Listen, Christians, God's power is ready to fulfill all of these exceedingly great and precious promises in your life. And you'll partake of the divine nature as you believe them and act on them. Rejoice, he's telling them. (laughs) I mean, that is that's a remarkable thing. And promises. Promises. It's from Genesis to Revelation. That's how Christians have lived. God's people all through the Old Testament. That's what sustained the Old Testament saints. God would appear to them and give them promises. Abraham, Sarah, Noah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David, on and on and on. They all received promises from God himself. And we can't take God out of the whole equation, can we? And we trust those promises. We're trusting the one who has given us those promises. We're trusting the person of God Almighty. And so all of them were sustained and were committed, the Old Testament saints and the New Testament, but especially the Old Testament saints, to the promises of God. And they lived by then. So if you would, turn to Hebrews chapter 11. In verse 13. Because really what you have here in Hebrews 11 is a history of god's people every one of them received a promise that's what they're doing they're exercising faith in a promise that he's given them that's what hebrews 11 is all about and so look what it says beginning in verse 13 hebrews 11 it says these all died in faith not having received the promises but having seen them afar off were assured of them they embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And look what it says about these saints and what they did by living by these promises that God gave them. Look what it says over in verse 32. He's already talked about Abraham, Moses, Sarah, Noah. In verse 32, he says, though, this is how these people live. This is what the promises did for them. He says, what more shall I say, verse 32, for the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith in the promises subdued kingdoms, Worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong. There's Gideon, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead raised to life again. All of this is through the promises. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trials of mocking, scourging, yea, of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, sawn in two, tempted, slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskin and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all of these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. These are not the ultimate promise of the new Jerusalem. He says, God, having provided something better for us, that they should not be perfect apart from us. So all of these Old Testament saints, they were trusting God, living by these promises The promises were fulfilled in their time. These promises were all pointing to their ultimate fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ and his coming kingdom. That heavenly city that he talked about, that's what they're looking for. That's what Abraham was looking for. Back to Peter, what are these magnificent, exceedingly great and precious promises Peter's talking about? They're all the promises of God that are given to us in Jesus Christ. Promises of redemption and their promises that all of the works of Satan will be destroyed. Because Satan, here's what he's done. Here's what he's done to our world. This started off as a paradise. And he has brought in sin, sickness, suffering, discord, and death. He's brought that into the paradise that God has made. All of it was lost at the fall, wasn't it? we lost the paradise. The promises are is that the paradise will be restored. All the works of Satan will be undone and there's going to be this glorious restoration. And that's why these promises Peter is talking about are called exceeding great promises. Cuz they're helping us partake of that restoration. Some of it's future, but most of it we can take now. A lot of it, let me say we can take now. We don't have to wait. Everything that was lost will be regained, and I would say, and then some. It'll be a paradise like we could never imagine. And that's why Peter says in 2 Peter 3, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, because righteousness doesn't dwell in this old earth, does it? not even close. And I'll be so glad to know that my daughter or whoever, a woman could walk down the streets of gold and doesn't have to worry about a thing. (laughs) None of us do, right? Righteousness will dwell there. So like I said, there's a sense in which these promises of restoration are guaranteed to be fulfilled. There's this already, but not yet aspect to it, this ultimate fulfillment, but yet there's an immediate fulfillment. So we can rejoice. Here's what's going to happen ultimately when you get to the book of Revelation. Revelation 21:3 says this. John writes, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them. They shall be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You yeah, imagine that? The trials you go through now. There's a lot of tears that are shed, aren't there, at times? There are. But he says, then, the ultimate in the kingdom, the full restoration, there will be no more tears. Every tear will be wiped away from their eyes. There will be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There will be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And he goes on to say in Revelation 22, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, Proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb, and in the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads. That's what we have to look forward to, those promises. And he's saying, knowing that, we need to be living holy now so we can partake of that as God's people. I mean, I can't imagine a greater blessing. We won't know until it happens, but we will see him, it says, face to face. Face to face. Can you imagine that? Seeing the Lord Jesus Christ face to face, no longer by faith, Oh, man, that'll be something else. But what about the here and now? Back in 2 Peter 1, I don't think Peter's here is just talking about only about the promises of the future, but promises of the present. Because in verses 3 and 4, he doesn't say he will. If you look in verses 3 and 4, he doesn't say he will give us all things that pertain to life and godliness, but that he has given to us. And those precious promises, he says, verse 4, By which have been given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. We clearly know the New Testament clearly teaches that God has promised for the now eternal life, forgiveness, healing, deliverance, victory over sin, His presence, the Holy Spirit, the supply of our needs. The assurance of our salvation, guidance, wisdom, peace, joy, and I could go on and on and on. Those are all things that will be in the kingdom, right? But we can have them now. they are promises for the here and now. We don't have to wait for that. The question, though, is, are we living by those promises? Are we living by those promises? Are those promises precious in your sight? Are they precious in your sight? Do they thrill you that God's given us those promises? What he said. So this, I saw this definition of the promises of God. I thought this was good. It says this, the promises of God reveal to us his particular and eternal purposes to which, listen to this, to which he is unchangeably committed and upon which believers can totally depend One thing I want to emphasize today is that when God makes us a promise, he is unchangingly committed to fulfilling it. And we can totally depend and trust on him, however you want to say it, totally depend or trust or have faith in him for any promise he has made, any promise he has made. You get to where you hear a verse so many times, you take it for granted. But this is no small thing. Numbers 23, 19. For God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. And listen what it says. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? When God gives his word... Like you tell somebody, well, you gave me your word, you would do this. When God gives his word, he never takes it back. He never fails to keep it. He never forgets about it. And he's never unable to fulfill it. Because men do all of those things, don't they? But not God. He's not like us. He's not a man that he should lie. He's not a man to make a promise and then he's unable to fulfill it for whatever the reason. Sometimes they're legitimate. A lot of times they're not. And so I found this Definition of what a promise is from the dictionary is a declaration or assurance that one will do a particular thing or that a particular thing will happen. Let me say that again. A promise is a declaration or an assurance that one, someone will do a particular thing or a particular thing will happen. Synonyms of that word synonyms means words that mean the same thing listen to this of a promise are a word of honor assurance a pledge a vow a guarantee an oath a bond an undertaking an agreement a commitment and a covenant and God is faithful to all of those things when we give our word when we pledge to someone that we will do something you give a pledge or when we take an oath give a guarantee that something will happen aren't we expected to follow through by with that just by the nature of the words we're we're expected to and so if you constantly tell me that you're going to do something promise me something guarantee me something and don't follow through what's the result of that when that happens with somebody, then you'll distrust that person or I'll distrust you and your promises will mean nothing. Isn't that the way it works? After a while with the person, you're just like, I hear what you're saying, but I'm not basing anything I'm doing on the fact that you're going to keep your word because I just don't know. You're undependable. Can we ever, can anyone in here ever truly look God in the eye and say, you broke your promise. i met all the conditions, yet you failed me. God, you disappointed me. Now, we can do that with other people, and we've probably done it to other people. But can anyone honestly say they can do that with God? Look him in the eye and say, you failed me. You broke your promise. That's the noun. I gave you the noun definition of what a promise is. The verb, to promise, means this, to assure someone that one will definitely do, definitely do, give or arrange something to undertake or declare that something will happen. I'm going to tell you this is going to happen. I'm making you this promise. I'm making you this promise that I will do this for you. I will undertake this on your behalf. I'm giving you my assurance. That's what it's saying. And I'll tell you, (laughs) my little boy, all my kids when they're little, they're great at holding me to anything I promise. And that's why before I make a promise, I want to make sure this is one I want to keep. Because he's going to hold me and make me feel so bad if I somehow am a little slow about it, right? I mean, that's the way it is. You know, (laughs) Dad, you promised to. And how many times do we hear that, especially when our kids are real little? And so earthly children, they hold their earthly fathers to the promises they make. They expect them to keep them, don't they? Mine do. Mine expect me to keep my promises. They sure do. Never let me off the hook. Never once. So, listen, here's what Charles Spurgeon said. I thought this was good. He says, We sometimes read or hear or speak of the promises written in God's word, but do not give them as much credit as if they were the promises of a friend or of our father or of our brother. I'm going to read that again. We sometimes read, hear, or speak of the promises written in God's word, but do not give them as much credit as if they were the promises of a friend or of our father or our brother. He said, if we valued them more, we would believe them better. And he said this, what has it come to this, that God's own children cannot believe him? Spurgeon wrote this. He said, I am afraid that we talk far too flippantly about our unbelief and that we seem to shelter one another in it instead of whipping ourselves out of it. Spurgeon said to be unbelieving may be painful, but there is a more serious consideration than that. He says, for it is sinful. Spurgeon said it's heinous to the last degree when we feel much more when we express any incredulity, that means disbelief, with regard to the promises of God. He said, just turn that thought over in your minds for a minute or two and see whether it does not crimson your face with shame to think that you should have any suspicion about the fulfillment of promises made by God who cannot lie. Spurgeon wrote that. I didn't write that. I'm just reading you what he wrote. Turn that over in your mind. Exceeding great and precious promises. We've given. And the testimony of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation literally is that God has given promises. And every one of them has come to pass. Every single one of them. Promises of blessing as well as promises of judgment. Because we can count on God's word as sure truth. Do You know, there's really not an Old Testament word... Or promises, it's just He gave His word. That's what it is. Then the New Testament, there is a word for promise in the Greek. But listen to this everything has come to pass. That's what I want us to see in our hearts. God is faithful. If we're holding on to a promise and we're meeting the conditions, we don't have to worry that He might not come through. We really don't. Joshua 21 45 says this it says, He says, not a word. Failed of any good thing which the Lord has spoken to the house of Israel, all came to pass. Joshua 23, 14 says this, and you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing has failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spoke concerning you, all have come to pass for you, not one word of them has failed. Now that should get a little reaction here. Not one thing of all the good things he's telling them that God has promised you, not one thing. He says, No good thing will he withhold. Isn't that his promise to them? Now you've got to add the next part to them that walk uprightly. You have to be walking uprightly. Does that mean you have to be perfect? Mm-mm. But you can't be God speaking to you about something and I'm not going to deal with it. You can't have that, can you? You're living in sin, we know that. You, know, you might have repented this morning. I don't know. And you're right with God. And you can have confidence with Him. But I like the NET translation of Joshua 23, 14 that I just read you. Listen to this. The NET version says, You know with all your heart and being that not even one of all the faithful promises the Lord God made to you is left unfulfilled. Everyone was realized. Not one promise is unfulfilled. Every promise of God has always been fulfilled. That's what God's Word says. You don't have to take my word for that. You can take God's own word for that. And the testimony of the saints of the Bible, plus the testimonies we hear here every week. 400 years later, after Joshua said, everything has been fulfilled concerning Israel. And you know, Solomon was the pinnacle of the kingdom. There was peace and rest. They had the most land they ever had. Things were looking good at the peak of Solomon. And the whole thing was, it was a type of of the the kingdom that's coming in the millennium with the Lord Jesus Christ reigning, right? The problem is, Solomon was a man and failed. He needed a redeemer. It's all pointing towards Jesus. He has to be the one that is going to usher in everything. Man always fails. That's what the Old Testament teaches us. But listen, 400 years later, wise King Solomon said this when he was dedicating the temple. He said, blessed be the Lord. Who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised? He says, There has not failed one word of all his good promise, which he promised through his servant Moses. And I could go on and on and on about God always fulfills his promises. That is the living God we serve. He is, as Bosworth says, he's an honest being. He is a person, he's a being, and he's honest. (laughs) <laughs> he is he's an honest being well i could go through however many examples where god gave his word and fulfilled it through the bible more than you can look at in a year but i would like us to look at if you would turn back to genesis 28 i want us to look at something here in the life of jacob genesis 28 and beginning in verse 10 so jacob has been sent by his parents up north to laban send him away go up there and, and live and find you a wife and Jacob, I don't believe Jacob saved at this point. But look what happens. Look in Genesis 28:10. It says now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. And so he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set, and he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head, and he lay down in that place to sleep. And then he dreamed and behold a ladder was set up on the earth and its top reached to heaven, and there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, here's his promise that he makes to him. And he says, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie. God promises I will give it to you and your descendants. Also, your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad the west and the east to the north and the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed same promise he gave to Abraham it just moves on down the line verse 15 though he says behold look he says I am with you and I'll keep you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land God promises I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you Jacob's not even saved and yet Jacob goes on to say this look what it says in verse 16, he says, then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. And then Jacob rose early in the morning, took the stone that he had put at his head, set it up as a pillar, poured oil on top of it and he called the name of the place Bethel, house of God. But the name of that city had been Luz previously. Then Jacob He made a vow saying, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then he says, the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. He's not saved, but he makes this vow. He says, if God will keep his promise then the Lord will be my God. But God is faithful to his promises. What did he promise Jacob? He says, I'm telling you, Jacob, you're going into a bad place. You don't know it yet. And he says, I'm promising you, I will keep you. And he does keep his word. He keeps Jacob. So turn over to chapter 31. So Jacob goes through all the 14 years of serving Laban, being ripped off, getting deceived by Laban. God's doing a work in him. And look over in chapter 31 and verses 22 to 24. So God said he would keep him. And Jacob goes to leave Laban with his daughters that are his wives and all of his stuff. And it says, and Laban was told on the third day, Genesis 31, 22, that Jacob had fled. And then he took up his brethren with him and pursued him for seven days journey. And he overtook him in the mountains of Gilead. And here's where God is faithful to his word, it says, but God had come to Laban the Syrian in a dream by night and said to him, don't you touch Jacob. He says, be careful that you speak to Jacob, neither good nor bad. He says, don't touch that guy because I promised him that I'd keep him and protect him and you're going to leave him alone. And that put a fear in Laban. Laban didn't. He's like, Jacob, what have you done? And here, I can't say anything to you because I don't want to be judged by God. God protected Jacob, didn't he? He kept his word. And that ultimate test, though, it came when Jacob returned to Canaan and Esau comes out to meet him with 400 men. Esau is not in a good mood and it doesn't take 400 men to greet your brethren. In other words, he's coming out. It's vengeance time. He's coming out to have vengeance on him. So look in the next chapter over, chapter 32. And look what happens. Verses 6 to 12. And it says this And then the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is also coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. So Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And he divided the people that were with him, and the flocks, and herds, and camels into two companies. And he said, If Esau comes to the one company and, and attacks it, then the other company which is left will escape. And then Jacob said, Oh God, here he prays. Oh God of my father. He's not yet his God. He can't pray that yet. Oh God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your family and I will deal well with you. He says, I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant for I crossed over this Jordan with my staff and now I have become two companies." Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. For you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for the multitude. And we all know, without reading the whole story, but that night he wrestles with the pre-incarnate Christ. And what is he wrestling about? God changes his heart that night. That's when his name is changed to Israel. He prevailed with God. And he sets up an altar when he goes back to God, the God of Israel, his God now. It becomes no longer his father's God and his grandfather's God, but his God. But God kept his word because when Jacob wrestled with him that night, he's wrestling with him over what's going to happen with Esau. He's faithful. He changes Jacob's heart He put Jacob through that long trial, gave him that promise and did a work in him that whole time to bring him to a place of repentance and change. Peter said what? That by those exceeding great and precious promises, we become partakers of the divine nature. And that's what happened with Jacob. He partook of the divine nature, not only changed Jacob's heart, but in faithfulness to his promise that he gave him when he came to that land, he changed his brother's heart. Because by the time his brother came and met him, his brothers got a smile on his face. And Jacob says, seeing your face is like seeing the face of God. Because he's seeing this is an answer to prayer. And God, did he fulfill his promise to Jacob? Did everything he said, didn't he? Kept his word. We can trust that. And then what about his son Joseph? He received a promise too, didn't he? Two dreams he got, Joseph did when he was a young boy. The first, he told his brothers. He said, I had this dream that God gave me. And it was about, we were out in the field and binding our sheaves. My sheaves stood up tall. And your all sheaves were bowing down to my sheaves. And he had a promise, he just didn't have a lot of wisdom. (laughs) And God's sovereign (laughs) plans. Because it said his brothers heard that. And it says they hated him. And then he has a second dream. The second dream was what? It was this. The second was the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowed down to me. And they didn't need an interpretation of that. It says his father rebuked him and his brothers envied him and hated him more, didn't they? But he's got those two promises from the Lord. Tell me, do you think that promise seemed real and alive to him? Maybe almost snuffed out? When he ended up not only sold as a slave to the Egyptians, but he's in the dungeon of an Egyptian prison, underground, far from home. Now, how hard would that have been to hold on and say at that point, put yourself in his shoes. God is faithful. There is like this much encouragement that those promises are ever going to happen to this young man. Even at the point God gets him to where he thinks he's going to get out and he gets stuck right back in there because the God forgot about him. And that just had to be, oh, you talk about a trial of faith, nothing, zero encouragement in the natural. And there's Joseph sitting in that prison, looking at his chains, thirty in pain, lonely. That's how he would have been tempted to say, well, I had that promise. I had that dream, but I guess I'm. The exception i guess god has judged me and that dream must have just come from eating too much lamb and barley cakes and maybe i'll just lay down and die you you tell me he wasn't tempted to think that i think he was but he didn't he held on to that promise that god had given him somehow and god kept his word to joseph didn't he because he always does It doesn't matter what the circumstances look like. If he's given you a promise, he will fulfill it. He doesn't say what's going to happen between the time the promise comes. Like Brother Hamilton, always used to say, he'll put you through the ringer till the fulfillment comes. But the fulfillment will come if we stay faithful to him. Because I've always loved this Psalm, Psalm 105, that talks about Joseph. Psalm 105, 16 to 22 says, Moreover, he, God, called for a famine in the land. He destroyed all the provision of bread. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. And it says this, they hurt his feet with fetters. He was laid in irons until the time that his word came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. Tested him. Are you going to hold on to that promise? And he passed the test. Then it goes on to say the king sent and released him the ruler of the people let him go free he made him lord of his house and ruler of all of his possessions and once again the promise of god makes promises make us partakers of his divine nature but it's just not in the way we would choose that's just not the way we would ask for it to happen but look at the final result look at the final result of joseph He went in a young, maybe cocky young man, but he comes out a spiritually mature man with wisdom. Because in that Psalm 105, it says that Pharaoh says, you counsel my princes, you, Joseph, because you've got wisdom beyond your age. But all of that was is because God worked that in him, that nature of God that came in him through all of what he suffered. He's molded into the image of Christ. He's a type of Christ and he's blessed, isn't he, in the end? These promises aren't going to destroy us, are they? They're great and they're precious. And Peter understood that. And that's why he wrote in 1 Peter 1, he says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, faith in the promises is what he's talking about, being much more precious. Precious, There's that Peter loves that word being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love. He's saying, oh, don't throw away your trial. Don't despise your trial. Don't despise the fact that you've taken hold of a promise of God and in waiting that fulfillment it's putting you through the fire. He's saying you're going to come out of that ahead, is what Peter is saying. And when your faith is tested and found approved, he's saying the result of that and the work he does in you and the joy you'll have in seeing God's faithfulness. He's saying that's much more precious, more valuable than gold itself, than anything you could imagine. That's what he says. We struggle sometimes that the promises, they seem too good and we just see too many failures. They don't seem like they work. And can God really be trusted, Mr. Preacher, like you say? And it's like I told you, it doesn't matter what I say, does it? That's right. <laughs> it doesn't matter if I get in the trial and I fall off the deep end next week. It only matters what God says, doesn't it? Amen. That's right. <laughs> it's what God says that counts. And that's why I'm reading a lot of scriptures today. Because faith comes by hearing the word of God and our faith needs to be in him. Let me ask you, if I came up to you after church and I had an envelope all sealed up and handed it to you and I said, don't open it till later. But I'm telling you, it's got a thousand dollars in there. I know you had a need and I wanted to help you out. I did that. Would you hand that back to me and say, I don't believe you. You don't have a thousand bucks and you wouldn't give it to me. Now, he said he wouldn't do it. Yeah. Would you do that? Nobody would do that, right? Would Just say, no, I don't believe you. I don't even think you have a thousand. You hand it back to me and I'd say, no, I give you my word. God is my witness. Nope, still don't want it. if you did that to me, I'd be insulted. Didn't want my envelope, but you wouldn't. You'd take the envelope and you'd take that envelope based on my promise to you. It's sealed. You don't know what's in there. It could be monopoly money. It could be a bad joke. You'd take that money fully expecting that money to be in there. You'd trust my promise, wouldn't you? You would. Back in 1926, way back then, little Johnny Sylvester was the guy's name. He got kicked in the head by a horse and he got an infection and he was laying at home in his bed dying. And the New York Yankees were playing the St. Louis Cardinals in the World Series. And his father sent an urgent telegram to the Yankees requesting an autographed baseball from Babe Ruth. Two days later, an airmail package comes one's autographed the entire cardinal team they're a humble bunch another baseball came they got two baseballs one autographed by the entire cardinals team the other baseball only a few of the yankees would sign it but there was a note on there a special message signed by babe ruth and it said i'll knock a homer for you on wednesday promised the kid that and what a promise and wednesday came in that world series game babe ruth not only hit one homer he hit three homers In that game, three homers that day, the boy recovered from his illness and lived to be 74 years old. What an amazing person Babe Ruth was. Makes a great promise. He kept it and the boy was healed. What a man, right? (laughs) But here's what you never hear about. Babe sent him a follow up note to my sick pal. And it was dated game six of the World Series. He says, I'll try to knock you another homer, maybe two today. Guess what? No homer. The Yankees lost not only the game, but the series. Oh, babe, he couldn't do it twice, could he? He promised he couldn't do it. Numbers 2319 would say this of the babe. Babe is a man and he can lie or be mistaken. He has said, but he could not do it. He spoke, but he could not make it good. But it can never say that of the Lord, can it? It doesn't say that because every word that God has ever spoken has come to pass. And he's backed every promise up by his oath. Turn to Hebrews chapter 6, if you would. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 13. Look what it says. It says, for when God made a promise to Abraham, there's a promise he made. Because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, surely blessing i will bless you and multiplying i will multiply you and so after he had patiently endured abraham he did what he obtained the promise it says for men indeed swear by the greater and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute it says thus god determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise that is us The immutability of his counsel, that means his counsel will not change. Immutable, it's unchanging. He confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. We might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope that is set before us. And we know this. When the angel came to Mary and told her, you're going to conceive a son, the son of God, without knowing a man, and also told her that your cousin Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, two impossible things in the natural. The angel said this, for with God, nothing will be impossible. Nothing will be impossible. When we sing this song, Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen, ah, oh Lord God, behold, you've made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arms and nothing is too difficult for you. And we all say, amen. God can do anything. Nothing is impossible. That's what the word of God says. Except it is impossible for God to give his word, to give his promise and lie. That's what verse 18 is telling us. Look at it. It says that by two immutable things in which it is impossible, not possible, not dunamis, can't happen. It's impossible for God to lie. He can't do it. And he says, in the fact, it goes on to say that he can't lie should be what? That we might have what? Strong consolation. What's that saying is the fact that he gave Abraham a promise, swore by himself and cannot lie, and the fact that those promises to Abraham are ours, we're heirs to them, we lay hold on them. He's saying the fact that God fulfilled it for Abraham, the fact that God, it's impossible for him to lie, should give us, those that are holding on to promises of any sort, should give us strong consolation. Other translations say that should be an enormous encouragement or strong comfort. And look what he goes on to say. He says, this hope, because we've laid hold of it. He says, verse 19, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul. We heard about that earlier today. This hope, this expectation we have as an anchor of the soul, and it's both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according To the order of Melchizedek. It is not possible, not even remotely possible, for God to lie. If you're living for the Lord and you know your heart's right before Him, hold on, He's telling us here. There's a comfort to that. He cannot lie. The NLT translation for that verse 18 says this So God has given both His promise and His oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. Amen? I mean, to me, that's encouraging. If you would turn back to 2 Kings 6, I want to look at one last place to see that God does what he says. 2 Kings 6, beginning in verse 24. So it says in 2 Kings 6, beginning in verse 24 And it happened after this that Ben Hadad, king of Syria, gathered all his army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria. And indeed, they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and one fourth of a cob of dove droppings for five shekels of silver. Then as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, help my Lord, O king. And he said, if the Lord doesn't help you, where can I find help from you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? In other words, there's nothing there. And then the king said to her, what is troubling you? And the story goes on to tell us these two women agreed to eat their own sons. And one of them is like, we ate my son, but she's not going to give hers up. And the king is pulling his hair out. Literally, it says he tore his clothes and he threatens to kill Elisha, the prophet, because he blamed him for this famine that had come. And so he comes to Elisha's house and he's like, God, do more so to me if his head is not off of his shoulders today. So he comes to Elijah's house and Elijah had this word for him. Look over in chapter seven, beginning in verse one. And it says, then Elisha says, this is what he speaks to the king. Hear the word of the Lord. This is God's promise. Thus saith the Lord, tomorrow about this time, a say of fine flowers shall be sold for a shekel and two say's of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. So an officer on whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God and said, look, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, could this thing be? In other words, there is no way this can happen. And he said, this is what Elijah said back to him. In fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it so again without reading all of it four lepers decided they're out staying outside the city at the gate and they're like if we sit out here we're going to die of hunger if we go into the city of samaria there's no food there we're going to die of hunger they're like we may as well take a chance at least they got food over there in this syrian camp that has laid siege on the city we'll go into the camp and if they kill us they kill us but if there's a chance they might feed us And at least we'll live. Either way, we're going to die if we stay here or go inside the city of Samaria. What do we have to lose? So they arrive at the camp, and guess what? There are no Syrians there. Look at verse 6. It says this, "...for the Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noise of the chariots and the noise of horses, the noise of a great army. So they said to one another, look, the king of Israel has hired against us the king of the Hittites and the king of the Egyptians to attack us." Therefore, this is the Syrians, they arose and fled at twilight and left the camp intact. Their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, and they fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they went into one tent and ate and drank and carried from it silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. And then they came back and entered another tent and carried some from there also and went And hit it. And then they said one to another, We're not doing the right thing. This day is a day of good news, and we remain silent. If we wait till morning light, some punishment will come upon us. Now, therefore, let us go and tell the king's household. So they went and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, saying, We went to the Syrian camp, and surprisingly, no one was there, not a human sound, only horses and donkeys tied and the tents intact. And the gatekeepers called out, and they told it to the king's household inside. And the king thinks it's a trick. He's like, I'm not going to fall for that trick and go there. But his servants convinced him. They say, listen, we don't have anything to lose. Let's just send one guy and the last horse we have that can even walk and let him go check it out. And so here's what happens. Look down in verse 14. Therefore, they took two chariots with horses, and the king sent them in the direction of the Syrian army, saying, go and see and they went after them to the Jordan. And indeed, all the road was full of garments and weapons, which the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. So the messengers returned and told the king. And then the people went out and plundered the tents of the Syrians. So a say of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two says of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Just like he promised, it happened. Now the king had appointed the officer on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate, but the people trampled him in the gate, and he died, just as the man of God had said, who spoke when the king came down to him. And so it happened just as the man of God has spoken to the king, saying, Two says of barley for a shekel, and a say of fine flour for a shekel shall be sold tomorrow about this time in the gate of Samaria. And then that officer had answered the man of God and said, Now look. If the Lord would make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he had said, in fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened to him for the people trampled him in the gate and he died. And all I can say is God is faithful to his promises. He made a promise and they are like, there is no way The guys like you got to be kidding me. There is no way if God rained it all down from heaven, this still couldn't happen. They'd been under that siege and then that famine for so long. He's like, I don't believe it. Unbelief. I refuse to believe it. And so God gave two promises, didn't he? He gave two promises. He says, no, this is what's going to happen. And it happened exactly like he said, didn't he? And he also told this man, here's what's going to happen to you. So I'm saying God promises blessings. His goodness will come. If we're on the right side of him, but also when he makes a promise of judgment, it comes too, because it happened exactly as he said to that man. And only God can do that. The reason I'm giving these examples is that God is faithful to his promises. If he makes promises, they will surely come to pass. That's what the Bible is all about. Our responsibility is what? Our responsibility is we have got to meet the conditions, don't we? There are conditions. There are conditions and meet the conditions and trust Him. Andrew Murray says this in his healing book faith. Faith is a confiding attitude of a child to Father who counts on His love to fulfill His promises. And that's what we're talking about. Faith in the promises. First John three says this, beloved, if our heart doesn't condemn us, if we're meeting the conditions, we have confidence toward God and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. You don't do those things and pleasing his sight. That doesn't earn you anything. That just keeps the channel clear, doesn't it? Because there's conditions. God's not a genie. We can't live in sin and expect answers. The reason Abraham and all of these saints, it wasn't just the promises, they had a relationship with the Lord. There's a connection there, a spiritual relationship. Abraham is called the friend of God, and he grew in his faith. We'll talk about this probably next time. But there's a growth in faith. Hebrews 10.23, we'll end with this. It says this, let us hold fast the confession of our hope or expectation without wavering. Why? For he who promised is faithful. Amen. Amen. We can trust him. That's what the Bible says. That's what it's all about. Amen. Amen. Well, let's pray. And Father, we thank you, Lord, that in your grace and your mercy that you've given us these exceeding great and precious promises. And we thank you, Lord, that you're always faithful. You, you are a God that keeps his word. You'll never lie to us. And you've given us these promises in your love so that we as your children can trust you for and And through that, Lord, you'll do the work in us that we can partake of the divine nature, which is more of a blessing than we realize. And I just ask, Lord, that you'll make all of this real, that, that you'll speak to your people today and that we, Lord, will be encouraged to trust you in your promises and to hold on to them knowing that it is impossible for you to lie to us. And we thank you, Lord, for your word and for your faithfulness and for the promises you've given us. And we thank you for all that in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.